0: So... (laughs) Sorry. Uh, wait. This is not uncomfortable, but it's very weird. This is the thing? This is the one. Absolutely. And now it almost couldn't have happened in a better way. Where did you want to be? So it was just like, ah! Am I funny? Now if I go over here, (laughs) am I still funny? Better yeah, way better. I never thought about that. Yeah, it's a I don't see it five years from now that you're not my most famous friend. You really have to commit to something. Good to have someone pushing you cool. in. that was really cool. Yeah, it might be cool. This is On The Cusp. Hello, and welcome to On The Cusp. I'm Ben Green, and today my guest is Ben Axelrad. He is a brilliant writer, he is a much-sought-after script doctor, and he is one of my favorite people that I've found in L.A. This episode is sponsored by Thai Pepper at 6219 Franklin Avenue. Now featuring a beef salad with exotic spices for only $6.50. So make your way over to 6219. It's Ty Burrell's favorite restaurant and not just because they share the same first name. It's Thai Pepper. So I have a pretty clear memory of when I first started to see Ben Axelrod around LA. Uh, One of my social bases when I first moved here was a house that people called the Winona House. It was a group of UNC students uh, who had moved out here That included Casey Trela, whose episode of On the Cusp you may have heard, Uh, CeCe Pierce, who produces this podcast, Katie McNeil, Garrett Kemble, Will Donegan, uh, and a bunch of other cool people. And Ben Axelrod was a guy who I would always see over at the Winona House, but who I didn't really know. I was a little suspicious of him because he seemed to have a very deep voice and he was a lot taller than me and everybody said he was really great, which made me especially suspicious. But when I started finally having one of my first conversations with Ben, I realized what a fun guy he was to talk to. And soon after that, we went to a Jay and Silent Bob uh, podcast together. Uh, which was the first thing we did as friends, um, him, me, and my fiance Madeline. uh, And that's when I found out that Ben was somebody that I really wanted to be friends with. Soon after that, we started to do these things called Ben Days. Um, A Ben Day is always uh, a day of the month where all the numbers are the same, like uh, January 11th, 111, or a Ben Day really could be... uh, May 25th, because it's 525. Really, you just have to have two numbers repeat. And we always go to Cantor's, which we found out was founded by a guy named Ben Cantor. And we just have a blast talking, kind of like two old Jewish men. And Ben's always been a really good friend and made sure that I get the pickles uh, that Cantor's brings for free. Um, But sometimes waiters forget to bring them, but Ben uh, fights for pickles to come to the table for me. It's always just a great day for us to catch up, and Ben is a wise guy, and I always end up learning a lot from him, Um, and I've gotten so much from his life philosophy. I remember one time coming to Ben and saying, uh, I was upset because I I always found myself uh, at parties um, when people would say, like, what's going on with you? Uh, That question, like, scared the hell out of me because I I never knew how to respond. Do you, like, try to say all the things that you're doing right then to defend that you're living a valuable life? Or do you try to play it cool and say not much, but then you kind of look like a shithead who doesn't have anything going on? And Ben just said, uh, what you do when people say what's going on, you go, oh, things are good. What's going on with you? And that was kind of a revelation for me. It sounds simple, but it actually changed my life. And Ben's given me a lot of things like that. um, And a lot of things that are more meaningful than that, uh, that have made my life a better life. He's also just the kind of guy that makes you feel good when you're around him. Um, He brings out the best side of people. And I know a lot of people who feel like he's shown them what about them could be great. He brings out people's greatness. And I feel like he's a person who's helped me believe in myself in my time in LA. So here's my interview with Ben Axelrad. It was recorded on a Ben Day, right after we had come back from a trip to Cantor's Delhi, And uh, it's kind of a unique opportunity to be a fly on the wall for a Ben Day uh, conversation. Though Ben talks a lot more on this than he usually does when we're at Cantor's. Um, Ben's really a great listener. Um, But here, uh, he does more of the talking as he should. So here is my good friend and a guy I've learned a lot from, Ben Axelrad am perjury, dishonesty,
1: jealousy, jealousy. I drove my horse to the sea to find myself
0: alone. Still. If you had three wishes, huh? But you couldn't use them on yourself sure. from a genie. Uh, oh,
1: what would they be? Three wishes, none of them mine. Okay. Well, my mom is sick, you know? So I guess I would use one of them to like to heal my mom. But maybe that's maybe that's too micro thinking. Like maybe the maybe the the macro approach is to say I would just cure the world of all sicknesses cuz then my mom gets cured and but it's not like selfish and that I did something that's, you know, purely for for the benefit of like me and those close to me while still achieving that objective of curing my mom's sickness and everybody else's mom's sickness, and dads, and babies, little brothers, sisters, cousins. Not all cousins, but the majority of cousins. uh, All the good cousins. All the good cousins. So that's one. So I'm I'm curing, I'm ridding the world of sickness and disease. But not death? No, no. Because we don't, because we know the alternative to sickness. It's health. We don't know the alternative to death. We don't know what it feels like to live forever. Especially given that like, you know, I would have to use one of my wishes to control aging. You know, because if you just perpetually age but never die, like at some point you're like this like withered 200 year old like living creature or whatever. Like that's somebody that I would think you'd want to put out of their misery. So my wish number two is that everyone who wishes to be put out of their misery is dead. (laughs) It's just... We off those who cannot off themselves. I think that's noble. I think that's a nice thing to do for people. A wish for euthanasia to be Yeah. Yeah. And then my third... uh, I would eliminate money. That's a big one. I think that's a big one. I think that, uh... I think in the end... Uh, We don't need any way of quantifying worth uh, that that humans can understand like if there's if there's a god and god is 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 capable of saying like this person's an eight and six and above gets into heaven great but there doesn't need to be a way for humans while here on earth to decide this person is worth more than this this person it's it's entirely possible that like the world will create a set of circumstances that make that determination for us but i don't think it should be left in our own hands uh... I know you're not originally from Detroit, but I forget. Where are you from? I was born in Temple, Texas, outside of Austin. My parents were at the University of Texas at the time. And uh, uh, Temple is the uh, uh, Temple's the buckle of the Bible belt. It's like, uh, they're famous for very little except for... Uh, like if you're in a science class in like middle school and you look on the back of those plastic chairs that we all sat in, those are from Temple, Texas. Otherwise, it's just the kind of the buckle, of the Bible belt. Uh, I'm uh, not not a Bible person. Rarely wear belts, <laughs> but uh, but that's where we were at the time. Uh, they would sing songs like like we left when I was like one and a half because we didn't want it. My parents didn't want me to end up in school there because they would sing songs like deep in the heart of jesus and uh this and a, like a girl um a girl who was uh maybe like three or four four years old and like uh you know the daughter of some family friends came home one day uh to her jewish jewish parents and told them that at school that day she had learned that her father's heart was black with sin because <laughs> uh, that's how they felt about jews deep in the heart of jesus uh and so yeah, we, we we got out of there as soon as my dad finished uh, finished at Texas, we uh, we lickety split, and then my mom finished uh, through correspondence from Michigan, where I'm from, I guess Detroit. How did your parents meet? They were uh, in a master's program together at Boston University. And they met there, and then both went on to Texas to get their PhDs. And then my mom got pregnant mid-program, uh, and so she took some time off, while my dad finished. And then they moved to Detroit, where uh, my dad was from. My mom's from uh, Chicago, uh, and so yeah, the people—that's what people do. They have kids, and they move where the free babysitting is. So. <laughs> Was it pregnant with you or your brother? Yep, yeah, pregnant with me. And then my brother was born in Michigan a couple years later. And
0: you just have one sibling? One...
1: Uh, one, uh, uh... One blood, one blood brother, and then, uh... And then through step family, some, uh, some stepsisters, and then one, uh, one sister who, uh... Not blood-related to me, but my dad adopted her. And, uh... So... I guess I consider her closer to, like, a real sister than than the others who are uh, just older uh, and, you know, nice people, but not, never really thought of them as family. Yeah. I guess.
0: Um, How did the world feel to you, like, when you were a kid, like, up to age 10?
1: Uh, Probably uh, (coughs) not. Outstanding. Uh, I was probably uh, I was probably a depressed kid. I was like I got diagnosed as depressive when I was four, uh, and by ten I had definitely already been to uh, like regular therapy. Um, I had a, like a very I had a very odd encounter with therapy. Like my, my first my first encounter with therapy was was very was very intense was this a guy, can't remember what his name was, uh, and he would, uh, he would shout at me until I would, like, until I was crying. And that was sort of the intent behind the therapy, it was a cry therapy, basically. Like, the, his goal was to just get me to experience, like, such a high level of emotion, regardless of how I came to experience that emotion. That like I just couldn't physically contain the emotion any longer and I would burst into tears and that was like success for him And so that so I would at some point in in the session I would just be crying hysterically (laughs) And he and then and then he would he would hand me some tissues and that would be that'd be it for the That would be it for the the session. That was that was what we did.
0: Do you consider that successful?
1: No, I hated it Uh, and I've never I've never enjoyed therapy since I stopped going when I was about twenty three, and I've and I've never gone again. And I wouldn't go again, not because I'm opposed to therapy. I think it works for people, but uh, but I hate it. Uh,
0: Do you remember there being a time when your point of view of how you saw the world changed? Uh,
1: yeah, probably when my parents got divorced. Um, I mean, I think there's there's a there's this thing uh, there's a the Lamarckian principle. It's this idea that like. That the first like sort of defining change in your life is is when you first encounter that your parents are not gods, they're not superheroes. When you first realize that they're just these fallible human beings, and then suddenly it's like, oh, this this thing is totally random and uh, and you know, there's no accordance of plan, like maybe there's a destiny, I don't know, but our but no one that we know is in control of it. And so I think when my parents first got I think when my parents got divorced, it came as a really big surprise to me, and uh, um, and and I think at that point, uh, I I lost um, uh, my faith in happy endings. Not not to say that I stopped believing that they could exist, but the, but just this sort of like this uh, this movie and TV I- idea that in place in our in our uh, in our path that. At any you know, at any point things could could turn out you know could at any point things could take a terrible turn. But ultimately, they were always going to work out for the best. That this was a hap- these are happy stories with happy endings. And at that point, it was it became clear that uh, no, I mean humans are uh, beyond fallible. I mean they're idiots, and uh, and we're idiots, and and so so more often than not, we're, we were probably gonna we were probably gonna fuck things up. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, that was like when it first occurred to me. And I don't think I was happy before that necessarily, but, but I thought, okay, well this is all part of like, you know, my, my, my happiness will come just like everyone else's. It just hasn't come yet. Uh, and then at that point it was like, ah no, probably, uh, uh, everything will probably just go to shit. Uh, and I like, you know, I gained a lot of weight then and, uh. I would say I stopped hearing about school um yeah so that would have been like uh 10-ish maybe 9 or 10 yeah 10 10 or maybe 11 even 10 or 11 not 9 let's rule out 9 it's not a possibility either 10 or 11 yeah I would say that was like the big moment
0: and then was there any other big change at any point uh between like being 10 and 20
1: uh uh, yeah. Uh yeah. When I was 15, I uh um this was sort of like the heart of the uh the attention deficit boom. And uh and you know all the kids were getting the Ritalin and I got the Ritalin and you know, I was taking a, my dad was a psychologist and This is like 1992. Uh, yeah, ninety, yeah, ninety-two, ninety-three, something somewhere in that area. So I was taking Ritalin, as were, you know, a lot of a lot of my uh, uh, classmates and cohorts, and uh, it wasn't really working for me. Um, in fact, it wasn't doing anything. So they gave me more, and uh, that didn't work either. And they gave me more after that, and more after that, and more after that. And finally, I was just taking more than. A person could really sustain um, and uh, and I uh, collapsed I was walking to the bathroom one night and I just got dizzy and I collapsed and I fell and I started hitting my head against the wall kind of convulsing uh, and then you know no one found me this was just I was convulsing slamming my head into the wall you know, having a good time and <laughs> uh, and like you know, I don't. I couldn't even tell you how much time passed. It wasn't wasn't a lot. Shortly thereafter, I woke up, and I wasn't really the same person anymore. And I couldn't exactly tell you what had happened or how it happened, but I did not feel like the person that I was before. In fact, I would say I felt like I had uh, evolved. That. At that point, I felt like I understood what other people were feeling uh, as well as I could understand what I was feeling. And at that age, I probably didn't understand all that well what I was feeling. So maybe maybe I understood other people better at that point. But just something happened, and I don't know what exactly, but I started to empathize in a way that... I know I couldn't empathize before, but it didn't. It felt sort of like other people around me couldn't either. Um, That just at some point, while I was slamming my head into a wall for five minutes, laying on the ground, um, something got jarred loose. Like some, you know how humans are. It's there's this uh, there's I guess this natural inclination to view the world through our specific lens. Meaning like this is. This is the world to me. It's very solipsistic. It's like if you if you haven't experienced it, it doesn't mean anything to you. And then suddenly, I began to understand things that I hadn't experienced better than the things that I had experienced. That if it was going if it was going on for you, say for instance, it was crystal clear to me. And the things that were going on with me just ceased to be interesting. It was um, I sort of for a long period of time. I would guess. I guess kind of stopped living my own life and just lived vicariously through others that it became like very interesting this idea that um that you could solve other people's problems and that that for the most part if you solved a person's problem they were just sort of instantly happy and it was like this nice thing this kind of Mm -hmm. thing that i had never really experienced myself like you know i would give myself what it was that i thought i wanted and then i still wasn't really happy and so uh, I think I think that became maybe the catalyst for wanting to help others more. was just that they seemed to have like an easier grasp on... I don't know exactly how to describe it. Like they, they were they were able to want a thing, get the thing, and be happy. And it just wasn't working for me that way. I don't think it ever really has.
0: Um, growing up, Did you know that you wanted to be a
1: writer? No. Uh, yeah, I would say I... I still don't know that I want to be a writer. But, uh... I, but I would say it was... It was something I enjoyed doing for the satisfaction of other people enjoying it until pretty recently. Uh, maybe six or seven years ago, it started being something that I did for myself and got genuine enjoyment out of. I always knew, I would say dating back to high school, I always knew that I was funny. And there were a variety of different ways that I could make people laugh. And one of them was to write these, like, pithy little stories um, that were, you know, extremely weird and usually kind of philosophical, but uh, mostly just extremely weird.
0: How would you circulate them? Would you just give them to people?
1: Well, I went to a weird high school. Um, I went to this school that, at the time I was there, was just sort of in its test phase. Uh, but it was it was an alternative. It was like an alternative learning practice where you would get kids for like blocks of course of classes. So there'd be like you know seven. There'd be seven. You take seven classes in a day, and three of them, say for instance, you would take over at this school called Model High School, where I went. And for those three classes, let's say, for instance, you had English, social studies, and technology, you would pick one. You would pick like one subject to study for the entire semester, and it would it would have to involve all three of those things. So, like maybe you would do something like um, you know technological advancements. Uh, You know in the United States during World War II, or something like that and so you know you get your social studies you get your English by writing these series of essays about it and then your Technology and so you would just work on that for the the, over the course of the semester and then at the end you would kind of turn in a thesis paper and uh, And so most kids went there for three to five classes over the course of the day I went there for the entire day because uh I don't remember if it was sophomore or junior year. Uh I they s- stopped allowing me to attend regular school. <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't that good at uh at um at being in structured learning environments. So uh there was a sort of an agreement between me and my parents and the school that I would just go to the alternative school all the time and, and I was very good at the alternative school. I was really good at Self-motivation And I was very good at, uh, at, uh, at uh, Like multifaceted Approaches to, to learning But basically I've always been Very philosophical I've always been able to say I've always been able to understand What made everything the same More than I could understand What made something unique You know So like You know It was easier to explain Why You know Say for instance uh, Acting And comedy and the law and politics and you know et cetera et cetera were the same than to focus on one thing and say these are the nuances of comedy. That's what truly interests me. I like the way that things. I like the way that things are universal more than I like the way that things are wholly themselves. And things at you know simultaneously, things are both. They're both extremely themselves and extremely a part of the whole. And I've always very much understood the whole and never really understood the, the, you know, the nuanced specificities of things. And so, so I went to this weird school where, uh, um, yeah, they would just kind of give you an assignment and send you off for, for the rest of uh, the semester. And sure, you'd you'd meet up with your facilitators and, and, you know, and have these discussions about what was going on. And even you would meet as a group on occasion, but for the most part, you would just be left to your own devices to create an interesting kind of presentation, which is basically what we do now, which is why the stuff that we do now, I don't find that difficult in terms of the motivation. It's basically I'm left to my own devices with an idea and my job is to turn it into an interesting and fun presentation. Um, so that's what I did. And I was, I was a very good student there. Now, did I get good grades? I don't even remember, but I do remember that they, uh, the school was very new at that point and they didn't have a lot of examples of me. They had a lot more examples of people who, when they were like, okay, uh, go off and, and do what you're gonna do, we'll see you at the end of the semester, went off and smoked cigarettes in the parking lot and you know, got stoned outside of the, uh, you know, the Hardee's, which is Midwest for Carl's Jr. Um, and so I, uh, I was good at it. I would come up with an interesting course of study and have fun with it, and and I was a good writer, and I was a good, um, <clears throat> I was a, I was very I was very convincing. I've always been, I've always been very good at convincing people of my way of seeing things, whether I was right or not. That you know, that's that's open to debate, but I was. I was pretty good at making people think I was right, even when I wasn't necessarily.
0: Did they start using you as an example of how the school could work well?
1: Yeah, they did. I started basically junior year. Junior year, I got plucked out of school for part of the time to help the superintendent write a curriculum reform proposal for the school that ultimately went into, not exactly the way that I envisioned it, but ultimately became a part of their curriculum at the the school district that I was part of in suburban Detroit. Uh, and then my senior year, uh, I don't remember how frequently it was. It was too long ago, but with some, with some degree of frequency, we would travel the state and I would give these little presentations in front of, uh, you know, either education conferences or sometimes in front of like members of Congress and stuff like that. Um, and it was cool. And, you know, I was, Uh, I was too young to have that level of responsibility because the newsflash it went to my head, but uh, But definitely I would say I became the principal example of what they were trying to do at the school Because like I said most most kids were using it as an opportunity to not go to school at all And for me, it was the only schooling that I did like I was doing terribly when I was in a regular regular public high school but as soon as you put me into this place, I just got it. I got how people were able to uh, educate themselves. That I think that's something that, that a lot of people find very difficult. I help a lot of people with uh, screenplays and pilots that they write nowadays, and that's what I notice more than anything, is that, one, people have a very hard time self-motivating, and, two, people don't know how to teach themselves. People have a much easier time being told by somebody that they deem an authority this is how you do things, and then they will replicate that. But the idea that you would say, okay, there's a, there's a you know, more than one way to skin a cat. I'm going to figure out by skinning cats over and over again. That's something that, that most people have a difficult time with, and I think I have a pretty easy time with it because it was just required of my initial education. And then from there, I went on to um, you know, liberal arts schools that are not all that different.
0: But you're a good example of how an alternative form of learning could unleash a genius in somebody who uh wasn't very good at doing regular school
1: uh, i think i was i was definitely a good example of how um how the pacing of school can be difficult that we've you know you sit you sit 20 kids down in, in a math class and expect that they're going to all learn at the same pace it isn't going to work that way and not only is it not going to work at that same pace but their brains are going to go different directions and and so giving kids an opportunity to say, okay, this is the pace at which I'm going to learn, and this is where I'm going to take the things that I've learned, I think I was a very good example of that. I think I was, I think I was better able than most to say, okay, well, this is interesting to me, and this I just learned this thing, and this new thing is interesting to me as a result of it, and that's what learning is. Learning is deciding that this this thing is interesting and i'm going to explore it as opposed to just saying well this is this is the this is the syllabus for a course we're going to do this thing and then we're going to do this thing and then we're going to do this thing that's not so much that's not so much learning how to learn as it is following an agenda and i was never that good at following an agenda which there's great value in there's great value in the ability to say this is what i'm going to do and then doing it i remember having
0: a moment where I was really angry in college, feeling that sense, uh, where I was reading the, you know, 40 pages of reading we had that night for a class and came across something about May Amenities that really interested me. And then I felt like, well, I want to learn more about May Amenities right now. Like, yeah. This is a blip in the reading, but, like, this is what I want. I'm compelled to learn about right now, and I know I'll become more educated by reading about it. Mm-hmm. But not being able to do that at that moment, because it's like, no, you got to focus on the thing that they've given you.
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely. And and I would say I would say the the positive that came from my learning experience was that I would always jump on that opportunity. This something something there was something some secondary portion of the text was more interesting to me. I would make that the primary uh I would make that my primary motivator for continuing to learn. And then I would I would move in that direction even when the course was going in a different direction. And then the negative was that the course was going in a different direction and I was somewhere else, you know. And in general, I was somebody who wasn't where everyone else was. And I think that became something that was, was hard for me. And I think it's been something that's continued to be hard for me in Los Angeles. That um, just because... You're not, because just because you find the tried and true methods to be less than ideal doesn't mean there's no value in them. And so a lot of times people would do things one particular way and I would do them a different way. And if I had done it the way that everybody else was doing it, things maybe would have gone smoother for me. Now, does that say, is that to say that I should have done it the way that everyone else was doing it? No, but I shouldn't have been... Thoroughly opposed to it either
0: A little dash of the
1: other thing Yeah Throughout my life I would say that I've needed little dashes of this and that Humility sometimes uh, uh, But but I would say Across the board I've always needed to be reminded That I'm not an island I would say that's the big thing It's just that You know other people are doing things away. Sometimes you just do what the group is doing because there's no reason to be difficult. And I've never been good at that. Never been good at doing what the group was doing just because the group was doing it. And sometimes I've been very, very good at not doing what the group was doing just because the group was doing it. And those things are not, it's not necessary, you know. You can have, um, You can have a sense of the universality of things. And also have a sense of the individuality of things. Um, I think I'm good at seeing the universality in other people. And I'm good at seeing the individuality in myself. And it would be nice if I afforded a little bit of that, of that uniqueness to the rest of the world and a little bit of that conformity to myself. Because, uh, I guess in a nutshell... Um, I need to become better at existing in a community. And, I'm, and yeah. I've never been good at it. Um, but I think these things are things that
0: it sounds like are what make you both very, very special and also make things a little trickier sometimes. Yeah. Oh. Um, what was applying for colleges like for you?
1: I applied to three schools. Uh, One, the first one was uh, Antioch College in Ohio. Uh, I knew this girl who went there, and I kind of had a crush on her. And she was, you know, she was from that same alternative program that I went to, and kind of a hippie. And, uh, uh, That's a good reason to go to
0: school. Yeah. You had
1: a crush on a girl. Yeah, I had a crush on a girl who was a hippie. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, at that age, I would have followed hippies anywhere. Um, and so I applied there and then I applied to Hampshire college in Massachusetts just because again, it seemed like a good hippie place. Uh, you know, I was, I didn't want to go to any schools that were going to sit me in lecture halls. I had just gotten out of an environment where, uh, I was kind of left to my own devices. I had my own like office at that alternative school and, uh, and I could just go and sit In my own room and do my work and nobody bothered me and and the thought of going to um, you know to a like a more uh, test-oriented studious environment was just and I'm not going to be interested in this I'm not going to do well so so I applied to Hampshire uh, and then the third one I I applied to was uh, Eugene Lane College which is part of the new school for social research in New York and you know we went and visited that school and and you were in new york and as soon as you got out of a class you were just thrust into manhattan you weren't there was no campus there was no uh you know the dorm the dormitory was just some apartment building on uh on you know east 12th street or something like that maybe 11th was it was in the east village and you know after that my sophomore year so i went to that school i ended up going there because it just seemed so ideal to me that basically I wouldn't go to college. My education would just be in New York and then I would take these random weird classes and their classes were particularly weird, you know, like a, like a history class that was, that was made up of like four days in like the, the Nat Turner slave uprising or something like that. You know, it would literally be a history class over the course of an entire semester that was about five days in history. And not even a part of history necessarily that that the other classes or other schools were teaching. And that was fun. I mean, I enjoyed it. You know, I would take classes on, like, you know, like obscure film theory and stuff like that. Basically, it wasn't school. It was, uh, it was just kind of fun hanging out with a bunch of weird liberals. And so I went there and, you know, sophomore year, uh, finally choose a major and I chose like theater and proceeded to study uh plays that you know other theater programs hadn't even heard of it was that kind of school and I liked that you know it was it was as weird as I decided that I was and uh and so yeah that was that was that was college I chose those three schools applied to all of them got into all of them because people weren't really not getting into schools like that uh and uh and then chose New York because it was New York. That was really all that mattered. I didn't didn't care too much about school. Wanted to go someplace fun.
0: Were you thinking a lot about what you were gonna do after college?
1: Never. Didn't really ever think about what I would do career wise until I was like about thirty. Cause I never I never really I've never been all that enamored with the idea that our choices mean anything that so when you're 18 you decide that you want to be a comedian and then maybe you are a comedian until you're one day not a comedian and then you've got to do something else and that's just fine the idea that we're enamored with stuff in the moment and we act on it seems very pleasant to me but the idea that it could ever really define us seems exactly the opposite. The idea that your job becomes in any way attached to your identity has always kind of sickened me, especially when you consider how little of consequence any of us truly do. Like, I can think of, like, five people who spend their days, you know, not in the entire world, but of people I know. I can think of five people who spend their days doing something that they should actually be proud of, and the rest of us just do what we enjoy and If we do a good enough job of it, there's reason to be proud. But we're just doing what we enjoy. And there's no real reason to be proud of choosing your own happiness. Now, does it mean that you shouldn't choose your own happiness? No, absolutely not. Go ahead and do it. It's just don't be afraid to decide that you want to do something else or that something new makes you happy down the road. We do it in most ways in our life. I mean, it's not a coincidence that, you know, 50% of marriages end in divorce. It's not because It's not because people are that cynical. It's because people change their mind about stuff. And that's okay. It's perfectly fine to decide that the decisions that we made in the past are no longer valid. And it scares people. It scares people a ton. But that's how the world works. And it's much more scary to continue doing something that doesn't feel right to you than to stop and say, well, I just have to accept that the person that I was in the past didn't understand the person that I am in the future. So... Right now, I like writing. Right now, I I enjoy, you know, coming up with funny scripts, getting stoned and sitting around my apartment coming up with, you know, goofy ways for, you know, characters of my own invention to live happily ever after. But I won't necessarily always feel that way. And I'm open to that. I think that's, I think that's better. I think it's better to say... I'm open to whatever the po- whatever the future holds as a possibility as opposed to Well, this is what I decided I do and therefore am so yeah So what did your 20s look like um, They were hectic uh, I was in New York and then Senior year of college so I was like uh, 21 I just decided that there was no reason for me to graduate. I hadn't actually learned anything. <laughs> I wasn't really going to class. I would line people up on the stoop outside of, uh, you know, the building where I was taking my classes. While my class was going on, I would line people up on the stoop, and I would just tell them jokes. I would just tell them jokes about my day, and they seemed to enjoy it. And so I had to, in my head, I said, well... Uh, this is way better than school. I'm going to drop out to be a stand-up comedian in New York City, you know, a place where where no one had made that decision, thankfully. It was just, it was just me carving out a path for myself as a funny man. <laughs> so I, I did that for a little while. I would do occasional gigs in New Jersey and, you know, an open mic here or there in Manhattan. But, you know, open mics in Manhattan are, you know, they're made up essentially of, paid comedians I mean it's there isn't there isn't like it's not a real welcoming environment for up-and-comers like I was at the time and so I had to move home I moved home to Detroit and you know just got like a stupid job at a record store and uh did my stand-up did do stand-up sets for a couple of years and then you know s- slowly but surely realized uh, hey um I should probably go back to college and this time I should attend the classes and so I did. So I went to school in uh, uh, suburban Detroit and, uh, and finished up there. Just got a communications degree because it was easy. And, you know, then I had a degree and kind of didn't know what to do with myself. Uh, so, yeah, that was, that was the majority of my 20s. I would say all of my 20s even. The, I had this degree from college but didn't kind of care about it, didn't care about doing anything Career oriented, Uh, I got a job uh, working at this law firm. Essentially, just kind of being a morale boost. At the time, I was uh, you know hired as a a courier. Like I would just you know deliver documents to like courthouses and clients and stuff like that. But you know, kind of essentially do nothing and. Uh, And they just liked me. They just liked my personality and they kind of kept me around and they paid me very well considering how little I would do. And, you know, they tried to promote me, you know, to the sort of roles that, you know, the sort of promotions that you can get without having an education in that field. So it was a law firm. So I didn't have any background in the law. They tried to promote me and I would just sort of say, no, Yeah, no, thanks. (laughs) I, uh, I don't. I'm not interested in that I'm not interested in the idea that I could stay here And it wasn't to say that I didn't That I couldn't have stayed there Though I probably couldn't But it wasn't It wasn't really about that It was more just that uh, I didn't like committing I didn't like committing to things it, I just didn't ever feel like Any of the things that That were crossing my path felt permanent They were always just sort of nice It was sightseeing, you know you walk down the street, and you look to your left, and you see something nice, but you don't stop and decide to move into that nice thing that you, that you just passed by. You just say, oh, that was nice, and you continue on your way. And Basically, my 20s were a lot of that, just seeing something, acknowledging whether I liked it or didn't like it. In the like it category was uh, professional wrestling, uh, all Coca-Cola products, uh, weed, 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 Weed. Those were the big three in my 20s that I enjoyed and spent the most time with. But it was always just sort of... Kevin Smith movies? Kevin Smith movies. Got a big kick out of the Kevin Smith movies. Um, Yeah. uh, Yeah, owned more Jay and Silent Bob uh, memorabilia than probably anything else in my life. I definitely had more Jay and Silent Bob t-shirts than non-Jay and Silent Bob t-shirts And all of the movies.
0: Did you own the uh, Bluntman and Chronic uh, comic book shirt? Yeah. I think it's cute to think that there might have been a time that we were both wearing this shirt.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. (laughs) Kismet almost. Um, But, uh, yeah. uh, And, you know, I lived in dingy apartments. Had, you know, some girlfriends that would go on to leave me because I was uh, doing nothing with my existence other than watching wrestling, Jay and Silent Bob movies, drinking coke and smoking weed. I like shat my pants once watching professional wrestling and had to like go over to Kmart to buy toilet paper. Uh, You know, this guy was really kind of making nothing of myself and was, and I think the big problem was that I wasn't upset with that. It didn't. It wasn't like I was a loser who wished he was a winner. I was just perfectly content being a loser, because what did it really matter? Uh, and I, you know that can be the that can be a hard thing about being self satisfied is that you don't always have to prove things to yourself. And I've always liked myself quite a bit. Was
0: there a feeling deep inside you through that period that uh, you'd also fulfill some kind of bigger destiny?
1: No. No, I mean, people have, I would say since I was like 15 years old, when people were in need, they've always come to me. I've always been pretty good at tossing out advice. I've always been, I would say, very good at listening.
0: And making people feel good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I would say that that's always been like a skill of mine. I've always known what to say to a person to make them feel like they were loved, to make them feel like they had real value. Uh, and that was my way of, that was my way of self-love and that was my self-value. That was my self-worth was that I knew whatever another person needed me to be, I could be that for them. And it just kind of never crossed my mind to attempt to be anything for myself. Uh, until I, uh, uh, I, I had this, I had like a pretty serious relationship with, a girl named Jenny and we broke up and at that point I couldn't come up with any reasons to stay in Michigan and continue to just be a Michigan loser um, not to say that Michigan makes people losers I was just a loser in Michigan could have been a loser in any number of states <laughs> just happened to be Michigan um, after the break, I just didn't have any reason to stay there, and I've never liked the cold. I've never liked being in winter. So, you know, I quit this career job at the law firm and, uh, and just sort of started traveling for a while. And one of the places I went was to New York, where a friend of mine, Lowell, was working for um, <clears throat> a uh, big-time movie director, and then that director died. And so... He had this free time, and I had this free time, and so we decided to write a movie together. This movie called Prison Wives. It's just about uh, a guy, uh, a guy who kind of accidentally becomes uh, the queen of a maximum uh, security prison. This uh, straight guy who becomes kind of a prison bitch, and uh, and it was just fun. It was I really enjoyed it, and it made me think, yeah, I could I could keep doing this. It was like the first thing I think. I had encountered where the thought of doing it tomorrow excited me as much as the thought of doing it right now. And most things, it was like, yeah, that'd be fun to do this moment, but I don't want to commit to it. And this was one thing where I was like, yeah, I'll commit to that. I, I could see myself doing that. And I still wouldn't say that it's something I will do for the rest of my life, but at that point, I was. it seemed like something I could make a life out of. Uh, And not necessarily in the financial sense, because a person's crazy to think that, you know, that they can really make a living doing what it is that we do. It's not to say that people can't. It's just crazy to think in your head, oh, yeah, I'm definitely good enough to be a professional writer. How would I have known, you know? Um, But I felt like I enjoyed it quite a bit. And so I kept traveling after that and ended up in California. And I was in Oakland. uh, And this is like right around... When I was 30, uh, I was in Oakland and, and you know, kind of thought, okay, well, California's great. I think I'll just settle somewhere around here. And I started scanning Craigslist, just looking for anywhere in California that would be affordable. And I, you know, nothing in California is all that affordable. But what I kept coming to was there's just no comedy in any of these other places except for Los Angeles. And so more and more, I was just looking at possible apartments In the Hollywood area And next thing you know I've moved into one And I'm spending all day Every day writing Movies and television And my 20s are gone, baby They're gone, girl What kind of things Were you writing in your early 30s? Uh Movies It started with just movies Wrote After Prison Lives We wrote one called Uh uh, The Brothers Grice Uh, My writing partner Lowell and I At the time And uh yeah, Brothers Grice was... We like to write about black people. Um, they were just always more interesting. Uh, and I think that made it sort of difficult to try to sell them. But yeah, it was... I don't know, they were just more lively characters to us. We enjoyed the dialogue better. We were both... You know, we're big like, rap fans and big... Um, you know, big fans of like things like The Wire. Uh, you know, urban drug cultures and stuff like that. At what point did you meet the
0: guys from the birthday boys um, and people like D.C. Pearson uh,
1: that would have been in the first year that I lived here uh, you know somebody told me you either need to do stand-up comedy or start a blog if you want to get people's attention as a writer and I didn't want to do stand-up because I had done it in the past and it just didn't really appeal to me the idea of writing jokes and perfecting them wasn't all that interesting to me uh, really respect it But I just didn't like it that much um, And so I started a blog This was like right before Blogs turned into podcasts And so I was really uh, uh, If I would have started a podcast I would have been on the cutting edge But instead I started a blog And was on like The, the steep downward slope Of <laughs> writing about your feelings in comedy uh, To people who did not give a shit And the truth was that people did to some extent It was a fairly In terms of of comedy blogs of no consequence. It was called Pooper Chocolate, and and it was fairly popular. Uh, You know, like a thousand people a day would read Pooper Chocolate. They were, you know, mostly strangers. Uh, uh, You know, I would write a piece, people would read it. I had uh, like a small staff, a cartoonist, and a few other writers, and somebody that did videos. And then what what ended up making the site fairly popular, as much as it was popular, Were Like these interviews that I did and so the first the first interviews I did were with uh, the improv group uh, convoy And then the second was with the birthday boys and the birthday boys, and I convoy was it was great Uh, But the birthday boys, and I had a very like instant natural chemistry we just got along very well and And I you know have been friends with them ever since the third interview was with DC Pearson and basically the same thing happened. We just got along very well and had a real sort of natural banter. I think the interviews turned out well, and we just kind of became friends. Uh, And I didn't do too many after that. You also
0: did, like, Neil Campbell, right? And
1: Neil. Did um, you
0: do Thomas Middleditch? No, no, I
1: did Donald Glover. Um, Those are the ones I remember. Uh, Then there were a couple others that somebody else did on the site. There was some with uh, five-second films. Uh, I think Britannica maybe um, but I didn't do those ones but yeah the, the site sort of started to oh some yeah things of that, of that nature um, not, not dissimilar from, from this kind of environment you know just talking to people about their process a little bit and then kind of shaping something that seemed to express their viewpoint you know just giving them a free forum to, to speak and then turning it into something that, uh, that had like a real shape to it it was fun, uh, and but mostly it was kind of like I did those interviews in the same way that I that I used to drink when I first moved to Los Angeles. It was just sort of like a way of meeting people. You know, you'd go to a bar and have a couple of drinks, and you know, it was just easy. It was a social lubricant. It was easy to talk to people and make friends, have you know some nice conversations, and the same thing with 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 the blog, with Pooper Chocolate and the interviews. It was at Early on, it was a nice way to get people to talk to me and have nice conversations and it was a good social lubricant. But then, as soon as I stopped needing it in order to have friends, I mean, it was very new to Los Angeles at that point. As soon as I stopped needing it, I just, the site went away. It was too much work and it wasn't really what I wanted to do. Uh, and I had friends at that point, you know, mostly, and the people that I interviewed became for the first few years I lived out here, and to some extent since, became you know the best friends I had in Los Angeles. So it was worthwhile in that way, but once it had achieved its goal, you know, some things you love doing and you keep doing them because you love doing them, and that was how I sort of instantly felt about writing scripts. And then other things, once you achieve the goal of it, you don't do it anymore, you know? You work at something until you've done it, and then you say, okay, I've, I've done that. I remember when I was like 20 years old, I'm you know, very tall, and so in my head it was like, it was just an absolute crime that I had never dunked a basketball before. So I said, I'm going to dunk a basketball if it's the last thing I do. And I spent like an entire summer, I think it was probably 22 years old, spent like an entire summer trying to dunk a basketball. And then one day I dunked a basketball, and I never tried to dunk a basketball again because who gives a crap if you can dunk a basketball? No one. Unless you're a professional basketball player, no one cares if you can dunk. But for myself, eh, I had set this goal. I'm going to dunk a basketball at some point. And I dunked a basketball. So there goes basketball. Because basketball, it's not. it was not my dream come true. And that was sort of how I felt about the blog.
0: What was the first external
1: LA approval you got from writing? In terms of like writing scripts, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to pinpoint what that approval is. I mean, I was getting, I was doing a lot of editing work. I was, you know, people would write scripts and they were very frequently coming through me. I've always been very good at um, kind of pinpointing what was working and what was not working in. Lies, I guess, in these like fictional accounts, but really they're lies. Like, if someone told me a lie, I could figure out if someone told me a 75% truth and 25% lie, I've always been very good at figuring out which the 25% was. And a lot of that is what that, you know, to some extent, that's what editing is it's figuring out the part that doesn't click with this, the rest of it, which is working, you know, because more often than not. That's how people would sabotage themselves, is decide that the best part was this part that was, in fact, the mediocreist part. And then turning the mediocreest part into the sun, the center of the universe. Everything revolves around this mediocre thing, and it's usually the thing that a person was first enamored with in a project. Uh, but no, I've always been good at saying, okay, regardless of what our intentions were going into this, this was what ended up working. Let's turn this into the focal point of the thing and build a world around that. And so people would come to me for editing. So I did a lot of that. And then the first thing I sold was uh, was an option on a TV pilot called 30 and Grandma, uh, which was about this woman who had a kid when she was 16, and 16 years later, that kid gets pregnant. Um... I optioned that to Universal, uh, maybe, uh, three, three or four years ago, four, four years ago.
0: And I remember seeing that happen, um, as like
1: a young writer out
0: here and kind of, that was like my first story that I like could report home to my parents of like, I know how it happens now. Like, and I've seen it, that it can really happen. Yeah. Um, because I I remember that happened and it felt like there was a domino effect where it caused like a couple of other scripts that you'd already written and had in your back pocket to like kind of go viral around Hollywood.
1: Yeah, yeah. It uh, um, yeah. Suddenly people are interested, and I did it. You know, as I've as I've pointed out on several occasions, I don't I don't typically take the tried and true approach to these things. So you know i just had a friend who worked at universal and so i sent him the script and at the time he sent back a bunch of notes and i you know t- took those notes and integrated them into the script and sent it back and i think that happened again but then you know maybe the third go around he was like i really like this and he he showed it to his boss and and you know they gave me some money for it um but i didn't have an i didn't have a manager i didn't have an agent i had nothing at that time and then once you sold something you know then yeah people wanted to work with me
0: that was how you got your agent at paradigm
1: yes uh, sort of yeah i mean I, that's how i got a lawyer and so the lawyer sold the script for me well, not sold it but you know he negotiated the deal for me and then he put me in contact with you know agents that he liked and you know, at that point, I had already, I'd already talked to some managers and stuff, but I didn't sign with any of them because it, I couldn't. No one could was really able to come up with any reason why I needed a manager. Um, you know, they had reasons why they needed managers, and uh, and it seemed like they none of those reasons applied to me. Not because I was special, just because I didn't wasn't doing the same things that they were doing. I never tried to like staff on a show. Uh, in retrospect, I understand that. One of the best reasons to have multiple, you know, representatives is that they keep each other in check. But at the time, it was just, you know, I had these ideas. I had some scripts that I had written. I had some scripts that I was going to write. And I just needed somebody that was going to try to put them in the hands of uh, studios and producers and networks and whatnot. And so, yeah, I signed with Paradigm. and, uh, And they took the next script that I had ready and... Uh, and, you know, got me a, a sort of a mentor, a guy named uh, Jay Hogan. Uh, Jay Kogan, not Jake Hogan. Uh, and Jay, uh, Jay kind of helped me develop this other script, uh, Sweater Weather, which was just about these fat guys that have an easier time trying to date in the winter months because people wear more clothing. And then we, we uh, optioned that one to ABC Studios.
0: Um, and just for the record, uh, both I and my fiance Madeline, have read these scripts, um, and they're f- fantastic, and also Thank like, you. way better than... Uh, we've read a lot of like the pilot scripts that get bought every year and end up on TV, uh-huh. and they're better yeah, than yeah. those scripts. Thank like, you. I mean, you're just... They're not not on TV yet, because they're not better than <laughs> everything else. <laughs> they you. are better. Thank
1: you. Mm. You know, well, I mean it's easier to get shows on the television if you take a more practical approach. If one, you go out for staffing, that, that helps. It helps to get people to know who you are and you know, doing things like improv and sketch and you know, stand up comedy, participating in like the comedy world, those things help to, to get your name known because when I write a script, my script needs to be as close to perfect as possible to have any shot whatsoever. I can't sell anything based on just being me on them deciding, okay, well this guy, we like him. Now this idea we can work with, they need to love the idea because I'm the thing that they're going to need to work with. They don't know who I am. And that's, you know, that's okay for me, but it is not, it's not the smartest approach in terms of, of efficacy. It's in terms of saying, what I want is to be a successful writer who gets things on television or gets things into a movie theater. That's not the best way to do it. Now, if you're somebody like me, who is kind of not that enamored with the idea of sitting in a room with, you know, ten other comedians and pitching jokes all day long, then this is what you have to do. But, if that is what you like, if you do like, you know, bits, and... Not that I dislike bits, I just, you know... I like to be alone in a room someplace. (laughs) The hard thing for me has always been that I like writing television, but I like doing it in a way that people write movies. You can just by themselves in a room, you finish a draft, you show it to somebody, they give you notes, you go back and fix it. The idea of being part of a team never really appealed to me.
0: I mean, it makes sense that the same guy who had an office in high school wants to have... An office yeah. where he does his writing, mm-hmm. and because the thing can get done that way, yeah. uh, it seems silly to have to do it the other way just because that's how it's done.
1: Yeah, no, it does. But maybe it was maybe it was silly of me to want my own office in high school, and the problem is that somebody gave it to me, and I decided that that was a good way for things to continue. I'm gonna have an office for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, and that is sort of how I am. Is that you know I. For better or for worse, and the majority of the time it's for worse, but when it's for better, it's way, way better. Yeah, that's, that's what I like, is the idea that one day somebody will give me an office, and it'll be the corner office on the top floor. And up until that point, I will get no offices. I'm not going to incrementally work my way up. I'm going to one day be in charge, or I'm not going to be in charge, but there'll be no in-between And that's a tough way to be, especially in in an industry that sort of thrives on feeling a little bit of control over the creatives.
0: Though it does definitely happen.
1: Yeah, it's happened. It's very rare, and I hope that I'm one of the rare instances in which the dreams do come true. But I do also have to be prepared for the, the possibility that... This will all have blown up in my face. You know, it's kind of like if you ask if you ask somebody out on a date, you need to be prepared for either answer yes or no, and I have to be prepared for that. You know that there's a chance that doing things my way is going to result in a resounding no. That hey, hey buddy, you should have done what everybody else was doing. Not everybody else, but you should have done things more traditionally. You should have done things in a way that that made people think that you're a team player. We'll see.
0: Yeah, I, that's what we'll do. We'll see. Yeah. i with uh, it. <laughs> because uh, in, in 10 years from now, if we're listening to this from your office, mm-hmm. uh, looking out the window, uh, and you got everything you wanted, you're going to look like a genius. True. And uh, you will have done it the better way Than uh, having been a PA
1: on Happy
0: Endings. Right, right. right. Um, (laughs) And if we're looking at it from your prison cell.
1: (laughs) True, true. Or what if, like, we're in my office, but, like, I'm on the ledge. And I'm, like, ready to (laughs) jump to my death.
0: Even though you've gotten everything you want.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, is that will it be what I wanted? Or will I always just find a way for it to not be what I wanted? We'll
0: get to see.
1: Yeah, we're going to get to see. Uh,
0: If you don't end up doing uh, TV writing and movie writing forever, what are other things you think you could be happy having your life be?
1: Um, You don't need to know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm interested in teaching. Uh, More and more, uh, more and more I start to think that It's always been the same I like helping other people to be better at whatever it is that they want to be better at and you're great at it and in, in this case thank you in this case I happen to have one teachable skill and that's script writing so I think in the next year I will start I'll start teaching pilot writing classes and then you know kind of see where it goes from there but Um, but yeah, that, that seems to me, it seems like I'm not gonna, I'm never gonna deviate that far from this thing that I do. I mean, I think it's an important skill. I think that there's a way, I think, I think people enjoy the joke aspect of it. And so for as long as possible, they thrive on just writing jokes. You know, how can I make something that's funny, that can get laughs out of my friends, that can make me feel like, you know, I'm a person of like humorous value. Um... But eventually, it becomes more about creating stories. It's more about creating stories that, that feature some form of redemption. You know, The majority of stories that we see um, are failure and redemption stories. At the beginning, something goes wrong, and by the end, they fix the thing that goes wrong. And often things are going even better than they would have had the thing that went wrong originally not gone wrong. That like some, you know, something gets thwarted and then at some point people correct the thwart and live happily ever after. And I think, you know, more often than not, we see stupid examples of this. You know, they're usually in like these rom-coms that work out in a way that real life would never actually work out. But I think if you can come up with a story that is, uh, that's funny, you know, it's important for your comedies to be funny, go figure. But it's, you know, it has to be a funny story But more importantly, it has to make people relate to it in a way that says, okay, well, this guy failed, so I can relate to him because I feel like a failure in most of my endeavors, because people do. Uh, But then in the end, he'll redeem himself, and that makes people excited because, well, if that guy can figure it out, I can figure it out too, you know? It's these ways of creating an abstract reality this you know this piece of fiction that other people can relate to in a way that makes them feel like they can do anything and that's why I like script writing that's why you know for years and years and years I would sit down with a single person and try to help them figure out what made them special or unique or potentially great but with these with the scripts I can create this one piece of fiction that can reach Everyone who reads it—not everyone, but a lot of people—who read it and hopefully one day see it on television—and it will speak to them in a way that I don't necessarily need to one-on-one. And so I think there's—you know—I think there's great value in that. I think there's there's value in my ability to speak to people without speaking to them, which I don't, which I didn't have a grasp of six years ago or seven years ago or whatever, right? had this sense that if i sat down with an individual person i could help them get to the bottom of themselves but this way uh, you can just reach more people and i think that that's you know that's important so in some form or fashion i'm always going to do something i think involving scripts but whether it will actually involve writing them i don't know you know i've always been sort of enamored with this idea of writing a theory book, something that uh, that would explain to people a simple procedure for creating dialogue-based stories. I mean, it would work with things that were not dialogue as well, but in particular, what I know how to do is write scripts, you know? so You said
0: earlier that you learned at kind of an early age that happy endings don't uh, always come about in real life. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel about that now, and does any kind of
1: God work its way into
0: the way you see the world?
1: Uh, now, in terms of—now I don't think that—now I, w- I guess I would say happy endings are—they're just human constructs. And having spent all these years writing scripts that had to fabricate some, some happy ending, because the things weren't real— uh, yeah I think I I've, I've I've come to relate to this idea that that's what that's an important part of our job is to create happy endings well to create narratives to create situations in which the happy ending is what we focus on that failure and redemption stories you just apply them to real life you say okay well at the beginning is the hardship and the story ends when we have found that happy ending now in in terms of like you know this this cycle of life or whatever it's going to end in death and as far as we know that's not a particularly happy ending but those who live are capable of spinning things in a way that feels like it was predestined that it was meant to be that things worked in a particular way that Uh, That feels like the way that it was intended to end. That, you know, not everything is going to have a classically happy ending, meaning, like, they lived happily ever after. But all things can end... (sighs) I'm having a hard time with this one.
0: Well, do you you really think it's all spin? Um, Or do you kind of believe that... uh, things have a poetic ending uh, because that's how the universe works.
1: No. Yeah, I don't believe that. I don't believe... I believe that... I believe that humans are poets and that the world is not poetry. Uh, But I think that that's... I think we were gifted with that ability because it's necessary to spin things in a way that is hopeful. That otherwise... It's like, do do I believe... Do I believe in God? Yes. I mean, you know, like so many other people, I'll say, the I'll give the classic, not the God with a, you know, not the white guy with a long beard that sits up on a throne in heaven God. But, um, but no, I don't think that, I don't think he intends things. I don't think God intends for the world to have this, like, you know, a poetic symmetry to it. I don't think that, I don't think it's expected that that happy endings will occur because God willed it that way. I think God wants us to find the positive spirit in things. I think God wants us to stop in a place of happiness, not in a place of agony. What has made you think that there is a God, you know,
0: not uh, again, not this, not beard God, right. but higher power
1: God? Uh, just, just that... I guess it comes from thinking that there are probably small, tiny creatures out there that think that we're God. And to them, we are. We're this higher power or whatever. And so, I guess what I think is that we have every reason to believe and in fact know that we are every bit as particular as those, you know, those, uh, these single-celled organisms that we're aware of in this world. that some other you know some other creature is aware of us as being tiny and minute and of to them zero importance and that in all likelihood there are worlds on top of worlds on top of worlds that are bigger and better than us
0: worlds on top of worlds just
1: i guess to put it simply um I have to believe that there's a God because I don't believe that humans are of any importance in you know in, in particular like you know we, we've got all this stuff about the environment you know like the things that we're doing that are ruining the world and I just can't believe even for one second that humans have the ability to destroy the world I can't believe that for one second that spraying aerosol, uh, aerosol is going to destroy the ozone and then it'll be it'll become uninhabitable for life forms it's just going to become uninhabitable for human beings like at some point humans are not long for this world and that's fine I mean we're going to go away because it's not our world it's just the world and so to believe that there isn't to believe in anything other than some form of God is to believe that humans are some form of gods, and I just refuse to believe that. I think we're so nothing. We're so you know, and the United States is, is all powerful. The United States is a teenager, you know. In the grand scheme of things, the United States is just like is an entitled eighteen year old brat, and you know, so many of our, our ideas about what it means to be, I guess some of our, idea, our ideas about what it means to be like noble and good are utterly ridiculous and they're just symptoms of a world in which humans have decided that we're more important than we truly are so I think whether I actually spend any time thinking about God or not is irrelevant I think that we're not that important but something must be
0: I like that. Um, If you had to make another genie wish, Mm -hmm. uh, this is a different kind of wish. If you just, a genie hope for uh, where you'll be in five years and we'll all be in five years,
1: uh, can you say some of the things of what that would look like? Same place. We're together. (laughs) Madeline's not there. That sounds perfect. (laughs) Just me, Ah. you, June. On the couch. (laughs) And this mic. Yeah, we're on this couch on a desert, deserted island. Just me, you, this couch, and June, microphone, <laughs> podcasting. June the cat. June the cat. Um, five years. For me and you?
0: You can do you and then you can do me. Okay. Or you can do me <laughs> and then you can do you.
1: Um, let's see, five years. It's That's something that's very difficult for me to do, is to think about... Uh, <laughs> just
0: how about one thing that you hope is true in five years for both of us I hope
1: that well I guess it sort of speaks to a qualm that I have which is that comedy movies nowadays are very bad and uh, and as, as as people who I would hope are getting paid good amounts of money to write comedy movies I would like to hope that we're writing good comedy movies and that we haven't Given in to the host of you know garbage scripts that are infecting the entertainment landscape. That they're bad. They're actually bad. Uh, and I and I'm not I'm not a nostalgic person. I'm not somebody who who always thinks that the stuff from my you know from bygone eras is better than the stuff that exists now. In most ways, I tend to think that the new stuff is better. But in the case of movies, television, so so. Uh, but in the case of movies uh, Movies are garbage right now Comedy movies at least Some of the dramas are okay But uh, nobody has a sense of structure any longer And essentially like Movies like The Hangover Ruined comedies They made it so that it became okay To just make long music videos And call them comedy And I would say that uh, There is little evidence that things are changing at all. So I hope that they change. <laughs> I hope they change and that you and me get paid good money to come up with the new, better versions of them. I like that, too. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, in five years, in five years, I'll be in my 40s. And, and I would like to... Uh, I'd like to be a dad. I'd like to have a wife. I'm not super good at tracking down things like wives, but uh, yeah, children. I can find kids. (laughs) They're everywhere. (laughs) Mm You gotta scoop one up.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Hey,
1: baby. Uh, But no wives. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't think it matters that much what we're doing. I would like to. I would like to think that we're, we're people that will adapt to whatever the world throws at us. That we can roll with the punches. Because yeah, I don't want to predict a thing, have it not come true, and have that be disappointing, you know? It's not going to come true. It's, you know, whatever I envision isn't going to happen. And so whatever is going to happen, I hope that, I hope, I hope I'm cool with it. Because, yeah, I'm not, I would say I'm not cool with everything right now. And while some of that is the result of the world maybe being imperfect, I would say more of it is the result of me deciding that things need to be a certain way when I don't have any control over that. I don't get to, and I shouldn't. So you hope you're in a peaceful place? Yeah, I hope both of us are. You have a better chance of getting there than me.
0: I don't know, I'm not very peaceful. You got peace. (laughs) Um, uh, Well, you know I love you. I love you too. And thank you for coming. Sure. Sure. On my
1: show, I feel like I feel like I didn't nail it. You nailed it. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Thank you. you,
0: know, you really so, do you think Ben nailed it? I think he nailed it. Um, if you want to see some of those blog posts that Ben was talking about, you can see them at benaxelrad.wordpress.com. Um, if you want to read one of Ben's scripts, uh, you can email me at onthecusppod at gmail.com, and I will check with Ben to see if I can send one to you. Um Thank you so much for tuning in. Special thanks to Casey Trela for all the music of this episode, our producer, C.C. Pierce, and our sound editor, Joe Burge. This has been On the Cusp. Be-de-dee, 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 be-de-dee. That's your outro music.